1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. The whole theme of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. Lessons from the heart. And uh, we are in a period in 1 Samuel where the lessons are not necessarily lessons uh, from hearts where hearts need to be. Um, David is headed to war with the Philistines, but as their ally this time. That's where we left off in verse 2 of chapter 28. He's going to fight against his own people. And while the Philistines are amassed for their campaign, the shift in verse, uh, scene in verse 3 shifts back to Israel, to a King Saul who is now very much alone. And when Saul realizes just how much he's isolated himself by refusing to turn back to the Lord, terror grips his heart. And desperate for advice, Saul disobeys the Lord yet again, and he turns to a medium of all people for answers. So chapter 28, we begin in verse 3. It says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets." So here we see the setting for the situation here. It reminds us that Samuel is dead and that all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. Now, chapter 25 of 1 Samuel had already given this information, so it does bring up the question, why mention it again? We don't need to know this information just for information purposes. So clearly the writer has a purpose, and he wants us to see that Saul has no one to turn to for advice. He doesn't have anyone. It goes on to mention that he couldn't even turn to um, illegal forms of, of counsel. He couldn't turn to forbidden forms of counsel, for it says that Saul had put away, he had expelled, it says, those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. The phrase there, those that had familiar spirits, it means a medium, someone who summons the spirits of the dead to communicate through their body. Um, It actually comes from a word that means a, a hollow bag, and it was used for mediums to describe the empty sound of their voice when the dead supposedly spoke through them, you know this is your Uncle Jan, you know, I mean, this is, you know, that's kind of the the way that they would describe it, that that's what was going on, and so that's the word they used to describe a medium. A wizard here, the uh, word uh, here refers to someone who is an advisor through soothsaying, a wise man uh, who communicates with the dead in order to relay what they say, and so he will talk to the dead and tell you what's up, what's going on. And, uh, and so people would seek out such practitioners for the purpose of gaining supernatural information, usually about the future, assuming that the dead somehow knew what was going on in the future. Well, Leviticus 19 verse 31 strictly forbid God's people from consulting with these types. It says that, regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. In other words, you're supposed to seek me out for counsel. You're supposed to seek me out for wisdom and advice. Um, Leviticus chapter 20 verse 6 made it a capital crime to consult such individuals. And the soul that turns after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. So these are things that were not allowed in Israel. And so Saul had expelled them from the promised land. Some suggest Saul expelled these practitioners early in his reign when he was still walking with the Lord. Others suggest that Saul expelled them later on because he was trying to appease God because of his stubbornness in other areas. Saul did this in other ways a few times. We can't know when or why Saul did this, but this verse explains Saul had no one to consult for advice. No one. And that's a big problem when the Philistines show their hand. For it says, and the Philistines gathered, verse 4, they gathered themselves together, 
and came and pitched in Shunem. Now, Shunem is a town at the base of a hill right in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. Um, that is nowhere near Philistia. Uh, the big hill, the, the hill of the, the town of Shunem, the hill that it's at, it's at the base of a hill, the hill that it's at the base of, is a big hill southeast of the ridge where Nazareth is located. And if you know where Nazareth is located, it's nowhere near the land of the Philistines. The Philistines are on the coast, way down in the southwest of Israel. Uh, This is up right smack dab in the middle of the northern part of Israel. So that the Philistines want to fight it out in the northern section of Israel shows just how big this campaign is. This isn't just a a foray or a raid into Israel. They're going to fight it out in the natural battleground in Israel where over 30 major battles have taken place in the course of history. Now Saul... He camps out, it says here, in Mount, at the base of Mount Gilboa with his soldiers. Mount Gilboa is the hill just south of Sunem, uh, the spring where Gideon told a bunch of his army to go home. You remember if they didn't drink a certain way, they were supposed to go home. It's located right at the base of this hill. It's a gorgeous, beautiful uh, spring area and environment. So Saul, when he hears they've come up north, Saul counters them by bringing uh, his army on a similar trek, but they come through the central hills of Samaria. Uh, The problem is when he arrives at the Valley of Jezreel, seeing the Philistine army absolutely terrifies him. And so it says in verse 5, when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. The phrase there, to greatly tremble, means it beat powerfully. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Saul had something akin here to an anxiety attack, something akin to that. I don't know if he had that, but something akin to that, where his heart is just pounding in the midst of his chest. And he did what most people do when they're terrified. He looked for someone or something to latch on to, some type of lifeline to quell his terror. Verse 6, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. The word here for inquired is interesting. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 10 with me. Interesting little tidbit later on in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 10, verse 14. We'll look at verses 13 and 14 both later tonight, but I want to Look at verse 14 right now. Actually, we'll just read both verses. First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. A different writer writing about this historical event mentions in verses 13 and 14 of First Chronicles chapter 10, so Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. We'll get to that later. Verse 14, look at what it says. And he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore the Lord slew him and turned the kingdom unto David the son of Jesse. I thought it says here in 1 Samuel that he did inquire of the Lord. What's going on here? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? No, it's not a contradiction. The word for inquire in 1 Chronicles 10, 14, and the word for inquire here in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 28 are two different words. The one in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 14 means to seek with care. It implies worship. Coming to the Lord, you know, and, and seeking his face through worship. The word that's used in 1 Samuel 28 means just simply to ask or request, often in the form of prayer. You see, when we look at Saul's situation that he's in right now, Saul could not truly seek the Lord like he had in the past because what had he done to all the priests? He killed them all. And the only one that escaped took the Urim and the Thummim with him. Saul doesn't have access to that anymore. And yet, Saul still could have worshiped. He still could have repented. Sometimes I hear people mock, you know, other people because, oh, now, now, he's, now he's coming to Jesus now because things are really bad. Now, now he's getting religious. Now he's getting, he's getting, you know, getting his Christianity back to serious levels. There is nothing wrong with crying out to the Lord for help when you've gone far astray. In fact, that's the best answer when you've gone far astray. 
but it must be coupled with a repentant heart. It has to be. And that isn't the case with Saul. He might be saying the words, he might be praying the prayers, but his heart is still very far from God. And so God doesn't answer. Now, I can tell you this. I know God wanted to guide Saul's life. I know that God wanted to comfort Saul's fears. Comfort Saul's fears. But God had already, he had already sent all the things listed here. He'd sent priests. He'd sent the room. He'd sent dreams. He'd sent prophets. He'd sent all of these things to Saul, and Saul hadn't listened, had he? There comes a point with the Lord where if I'm not going to do what he says, God has nothing else to say. And so this chapter is a very sad section of Scripture because, unfortunately, I've seen it happen this exact same way for people I've known. They stubbornly reject God's counsel over and over and over, but still deceive themselves into thinking everything will be fine. I can handle this. Well, rest assured that God is not going to be mocked like that. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, I I always love how people say, well, the Old Testament is just full of wrath and the New Testament's full of grace and love. And I'm like, you're not reading the same book I'm reading. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, very heavy staying from Paul the Apostle. Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself and don't let anyone else deceive you because this is not true. God is not mocked. He's not going to be mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh of the flesh reap corruption, things that rot, things that die. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, eternal things, things from the Lord. God's silence is Saul's, he's reaping at the end what he'd sown for many, many years. And rest assured, God's going to not just ignore that. Now, the reason of the, this section of Scripture is truly sad is because, you know, if we look at other stories in Scripture, other accounts of individuals in Scripture, like the story of the prodigal son, this is the point where the prodigal son comes to his senses, right? Like, this is the point where God's not speaking, nothing's working, you have nowhere to turn, you're holding the, the half-eaten corn cob that the pig ate in your hand, and you're going, what am I doing here? This, that's the point. This is the point in someone's life when you're supposed to go, what am I doing here? Like, what have I done? What, what kind of choices have I been making? What kind of way have I decided to live my life? And you come to your senses and you go, there's only one way to go, back to the Lord, right? And that's what makes this part of the story so sad, is that Saul does not do that. He persists in his own ways, and then he decides to resort to a forbidden source for advice, a forbidden source for the answers he so desperately seeks. Verse 7, then said Saul unto his servants, seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. And so Saul disguised himself and put on other raiment, and he went, two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray you, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me him up whom I shall name unto you. Now, this woman, the medium here, she is living in the city of Endor. Uh, it's a, another spring, and this one is a city that's just three miles south of Mount Tabor, which is just a mile or two northeast of the Philistine army. That means Saul had to travel toward the Philistine army, the very thing he's terrified of, in order to go see her. Can I give you some advice? When God is putting obvious obstacles like this in your path, please don't stubbornly reach for the thing he's trying to keep you from. Sadly, Saul is not deterred. And so he disguises himself, he puts on this clothing that would not be kingly clothing, I guess, and he, he went, two men with him, they come to the gal by night, and he says, I pray you, divine unto me, the word there, divine, means to determine the future through supernatural means. He says, I, I need you to find out what's going to happen to me, and if it's bad, if there's anything I can do to stop it, bring me him up 
whom I shall name unto you. I want you to allow some dead spirit to possess you so that he can speak to me through you. And the woman said to him, verse 9, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those that have familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? In other words, what are you doing here? This is a trap. This is a setup. She doesn't believe that this person, whoever he is, is genuine. She figures it's a trap to put her to death. That somehow someone found out about her past and she's been living under the radar. She didn't leave the land. And that now somehow Saul has sent her to, he sent this person to trap her, to set her up so he can put her to death. But Saul, in verse 10, he makes a promise to her that convinces her to reveal. Yeah, I'll do that for you. Verse 10. And Saul sware to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall no punishment happen to you for this thing. As the Lord lives, that's the most solemn oath that an Israeli citizen can make. My promise to you is as true as the fact that God is real. What is Israel supposed to pray? And what's their big thing that they're supposed to say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, right? I mean, that's, that's the Shema. That's their big thing. And he's going to make his promise not to harm someone that's doing something that's a capital crime by swearing to the Lord. What a contradiction that the last time we see Saul invoke the Lord's name is to prove his sincerity in wanting to disobey the Lord. And in the end, as we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, this was the last straw for the Lord. This is why the Lord put him to death. This is why the Lord caused him to die in this next battle. Well, convinced by this oath, the woman decides to take the job. Verse 11, then said the woman, whom shall I bring up unto you? And he said, bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. So the medium here, she says, who do you want me to bring up? He says, Samuel. And when she saw Samuel, she freaked out. Now, now I don't need to explain this. This makes easy sense, right? Everybody knows what's going on here. I can just move on. (laughs) Don't you love it when pastors do that? You know, they just, they don't even do what I just did. They just keep reading and they don't address it. And they go to like four, four verses later and you're like, come on. I swore I would never do that. So, what's going on here? There's lots of views on what actually is happening here. Uh, one view is that this was a deception from Satan and not really Samuel. Um, thus, she doesn't have the power to speak to dead people, and she doesn't really see Samuel. She thought she did, but Satan sent a demon or something else to impersonate Samuel uh, and confuse the situation. That's one view. Another view is that she did summon Samuel's spirit because she did have the power to consult with dead people, and thus this was really Samuel, and Samuel was really speaking through her. Another view, a final view, is that, well, no one is able to summon or consult dead spirits, but God allowed Samuel's spirit to go for his own purposes in this one unique situation. I have to be honest with you, every view is slightly problematic. (laughs) Uh, But based on everything else the Scripture teaches, um, I find it impossible to believe that any human being, uh, whether innately or from the enemy, has the ability to pull a dead spirit back to this realm. I don't believe any, based on Scripture, I don't believe any human being has that ability. But as we'll see in a moment, this scenario seems way too legitimate to be a deception. And the text gives us no indication that it's a deception. It speaks just as if it's Samuel. It's really him. It it doesn't give us any indication that this is the enemy doing this at all. And so this leads me to conclude that God somehow opened the veil between our world and the spiritual one in this one instance because it suited his plans. I realize that view has issues, which I'll mention later, but that's the one that I fall on. 
And when it happened, it freaked the gal out. It mentions here that she cried out. The word here means to wail in pain or emotional anguish. Uh, We don't know what her initial communication was, but whatever it was, it revealed Saul's true identity, and now she thinks she's dead. Now, I'm a dead woman. Not only is it a setup, but it's Saul himself is here to, to, you know, see see that the deed is done. And so she says to him, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Look at verse 13. And the king said unto her, you know what would have been nice if verse 13 said? You know what, miss? We've both sinned tonight. Let's go seek the Lord and repent. That's, that would have been nice if that's what verse 13 said. But it doesn't say that because Saul doesn't want to repent yet. The king says unto her, be not afraid. Saul comforts her, and then once she calms down, signify there's a pause here with the colon, once she knows he's not going to kill her, he gets right to business. And he says, for what did you see? Uh, the word for there actually means rather. Instead of being afraid, rather, let's, let's go. Let, let, we're here for, I'm here for this purpose. Tell me what you saw. And the one said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. The word here is Elohim, so uh, it's not gods is probably not the proper way. Literally, she's saying, I saw the Lord. I saw God ascending, rising up out of the earth. She believes she saw the Lord rising up out of the ground. And, and, you know, this kind of leads me to believe that she was more of a con artist and not the real deal. Because if she's used to seeing these type of things, I don't think it would have shocked her so much. Um, when, when it actually happened. Uh, but she thinks she sees the Lord coming up out of the ground. And so uh, Saul says to her, what form is he of? What does he look like? She'll, he'll know it's not the Lord if it's got a form. And so, because remember, no man has seen God at any time. And so, you know, what does he look like? And, you know, Saul, <laughs> Saul knows it's not the Lord. The Lord doesn't appear physically. And so she said, well, an old man comes up, and he is covered with a mantle. He has wrapped himself in a robe. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. Uh, he means to acknowledge that you know something or someone. When he hears this description, he goes, that, that's him. That's Samuel. And so he stooped with his face to the ground, and he bowed himself. Saul, he says, let's go for it. Let's, let's go move forward. This has got to be Samuel. And this is the part, like I said, where even my viewpoint gets challenging because some are very uncomfortable with the idea of her being like Samuel speaking through her um, for good reason. Uh, so some say that, well, Saul actually saw Samuel's spirit and the medium wasn't involved in the conversation from this point. Uh, But Saul makes it clear in this verse that he needs her to describe him. He can't see Samuel. So if this is really Samuel and God is doing a miracle here, then it seems odd that the Lord would allow Samuel to speak through a medium. But that's exactly how the next few verses play out if we look at them. So this is why this section of Scripture can be very confusing because you think, well, Lord, why would you do that? Um, The only thing I can say is that, well, the Lord didn't choose this situation. Saul did. And, and the Lord's trying to reach Saul. And maybe you've got experiences in your own life where the Lord's met you in places that the Lord doesn't normally meet people, places you shouldn't have been. And maybe perhaps that's just the situation here where God is just being very gracious one last time to Saul to seek to get him to repent. Well, verse 15, what does Mr. Samuel have to say? And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disquieted me to bring me up? <laughs> the word disquiet means to agitate, cause a disturbance. I'm done. <laughs> Can't you just stop bothering me? I shed so many tears from you. I'm now I'm with the Lord. Why, why, why are you pestering me, agitating me now? Why have you resorted to such deeds to disturb me? Do you have no boundaries, Saul? Has it really come to this? that I have to say the same things to you now that I'm gone when I was still alive. And Saul answered him, I'm sore distressed, 
for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known unto me what I shall do. This conversation is the same conversation Saul and Samuel have every time since Saul's disobeyed. Why didn't you kill all the Amalekites? Well, I did kill all the Amalekites, but I saved a few of the animals and I saved the king because I wanted to make an offering to the Lord. Therefore, there's always a therefore, Saul. How come there's not just a, I blew it? And I'm going to make it right. There's never been that moment for Saul in any of his interactions from Samuel from the first moment that Saul and Samuel started having issues. There's never been that moment. It's the same story every time. And it's why Saul and Samuel never go any further than God is done with you. God is done with you. God is done with you. Because until Saul comes to a place where he goes, I'm okay with with God being done with me. I abdicate. I'm okay with it. I just want to walk with the Lord from this moment forward. Until that happens, there is no anywhere else to go. And the word sore distressed, I mean, he's clearly in a fix. The word here literally means I am tied up to the max. I, I I got nowhere to go. The Philistines have invaded. I have no one to tell me what to do. This was the only option I had left. Excuses, the same thing every time. My only option was to disobey. (laughs) It's the same answer. I mean, we could change the words around, but he's saying the same thing every time. My only option was to disobey God. It's very similar to David's reasonings in 1 Samuel 27.1 when he leaves the promised land. David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. Really, David? There's no better option than going to the Philistines? (laughs) Disobedience is never the only option. Never. But by stating such, Saul shows that he still refuses to repent, still refuses to even acknowledge that His problems are self-inflicted. And thus, because he still refuses to repent, Samuel has no good news for him. Verse 16, And Samuel said to him, Wherefore then do you ask of me? If this is how it still is with you, why are you asking something from me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and he has become your enemy? Why do you think I would help you when the Lord is opposed to you? Why would you think that I would do that? And while that seems like a very unsympathetic response to understand it, we must remember why God is working against Saul. Saul's still trying to hold on to the kingdom that God took away from him. And as long as Saul's doing that, there's no way the Lord can help him. Saul's like that person, you know, who asks for advice, but because he doesn't like the answer he gets, he just keeps asking others until someone finally tells him what he wants to hear. He's not really asking for advice. He's looking for permission. Saul didn't need to know what to do. He already knew what to do. Abdicate. It's that simple. The reason that his current problem has no answer is because it's not supposed to be his problem. (laughs) It's supposed to be David's problem. But you've run David out of town, (laughs) and you've stubbornly held on to that which God has taken away. And Samuel reminds him of that. Verse 17, and the Lord has done to him, to you, as he spoke by me. For the Lord has rent the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, even to David. Isn't that fascinating? He says, I have nothing new to say to you, Saul, because I explained why this is happening to you when I was alive. Right? It's the same thing he told Saul when he was alive. I have nothing new to say to you, Saul. You see no options because it's not the Philistines who are trying to rip the kingdom from you, Saul. It's the Lord. 
Saul knew that God was giving the kingdom to someone else, but this is the first time that someone has actually verbalized to him that it's David. This is the first time the Lord tells him it's David. And yet, did Saul need to be told that? He already knew it, right? I mean, he already told David as much, right? He already knows it. Saul's heart is desperately grasping at the wind when there's something solid that he, he can actually latch on to. It's like floundering out in the sea and someone throws you a, you know, a, a flotation device, you know, a, whatever, I can't, my brain's not working, whatever that's called. And you, you see it right next to you and you're like, no, no, you know, you're reaching for something else, you know, praying to Neptune for a dolphin to come rescue you, you know. The Lord's like, I put, a, I put a life jacket right out there. You know, I threw the floaty thing out there. Just abdicate. Make a fresh start with the Lord. Walk away. Walk away from the kingdom. But Saul doesn't. Because even though his heart is desperate, his heart is not desperate for help. His heart is desperate to hold on to his way of doing things. He's still as stubborn as when his problems with God started. And so verse 18 says, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor executed his wrath upon, the, upon Amalek. I mean, we're going all the way back. We're talking 20, 25 years earlier when that happened. He's never, ever dealt with that attitude toward the Lord. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore has the Lord done this thing unto you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shall you and your sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines." Samuel says, not only do I have no help for you, I don't have any good news for you at all, Saul. Israel's going to lose tomorrow, and you and your sons will be with me in the afterlife. Now, we know that Jonathan is in heaven, right? Saul's son. We know Samuel's in heaven. So this does seem to indicate that Saul also is in heaven. So the question that we ask is, how is that possible? with everything that Saul's done and how his heart is so far from the Lord. There are a few people from Scripture who lived horribly disappointing lives, but the Bible indicates that they were saved. Samson is probably the most glaring example, you know. I know the way Saul lived wasn't okay with God. I know Saul was quite miserable. I know Saul had no assurance of his salvation. I know he had no peace and no joy. I know Saul hurt a lot of people, but I also know the blood of Jesus paid for every person's sin from all of time. I know I'm not saved by my works, and I know God is more gracious than we can ever conceive. So what does this teach us? Well, it teaches us what Ephesians 2, 7 says, the riches of God's grace are overflowing. In Ephesians 2, verse 7, it tells us, by the blood of Jesus, we have redemption. Oh, I'm sorry, that's one seven. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2 7 says that in the ages to come, why salvation is of grace, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So we do know that, and we see that in the life of Saul, that God's grace is super overflowing towards him. But we also know this. We are to never use the excuse of God's grace as a license to sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's God's answer through Paul? God forbid, don't ever think that. Perish the thought. Don't ever think that. Romans 6.15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid, don't ever think that. <laughs> grace is never a license to sin. But God's grace is indeed amazing. 
And so, we see that when Saul hears that this is the end, that he's going to die tomorrow, it doesn't go well with him. Look at verse 20. Then Saul, it says, fell straightway all along on the earth, and he was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all the day, nor all the night. Now, when people come to me and they're in a situation like King Saul, it's not my job to tell them if they're saved or not. It's not my job to tell them if they're saved or not. It's not my job to analyze and go, well, you're not, you're not, you're not going to heaven, clearly. You know, you don't, I, I'm not going to stamp your card. You're, you're not going to make it. You know? That's not my job. And so what do you do with someone who professes faith, like Saul does? I mean, he's telling this medium, as the Lord lives, I won't kill you. Summon up a dead spirit for me. <laughs> what do you tell someone who professes faith in the Lord, but they're clearly not walking with the Lord? Well, this is what I tell them. I tell them, you're not right with God. You're not right with God. Now, that frequently will get a response along the lines of, are you telling me I'm going to hell? So, there's only one judge, and that's the Lord, not me. I am not the one to say where you're standing with him is. But I can say this, you are not right with God. And when someone is not right with God, you can't give them assurance of their salvation and tell them, well, hey, grace covers everything, you're okay. You can't do that. If you're here tonight and you profess faith in the Lord, but you're not right with God, don't expect me to, to come to you and say, oh, God is gracious, don't worry about it, keep on sinning. I, I'm never going to say that because the Word tells us that we're not to do that. So what I tell them is I say, you need to get right with God. So what does that mean? I don't know what that means. All I know is I can't be the one to give you any assurance of your salvation. Because the Bible says that when someone loves God, they keep his commandments. When someone loves God, they love their brothers and sisters. When someone loves God, they're in the truth of God, right? Those are the three tests from 1 John. 1 John was written that you might know, you that believe in the name of the Son of God might know that you have eternal life. And knowing that, you'd for, forge forward in your trust in the Lord, right? 1 John is written for the purpose of knowing that, that we're saved, to give us assurances of our salvation. And it gives us those three tests. You know, does my life, you know, am I, is my life one of generally being obedient to the Lord? You know, that, that I'm, I desire to be obedient to the Lord? Is that, is that the, you know, is that my life, a general description? Is my life generally described as loving the brethren? You know, is my life generally described as being in the truth? You know, on the essentials of the faith? Well, okay, good. I'm, I can forge ahead. On the other hand, if my life can be described generally by disobedience or hating my brothers and sisters in the Lord, or, uh, you know, uh, embracing false doctrine, now we've got a problem. <laughs> now we've got a problem. How can I say I love God whom I have not seen if I don't love my brother and sister who I can see? How can I say I love God if I won't do what he says? How can I say I love God when I don't even believe the right things about who he is? Those things create issues. And when someone's off in those areas, you can't just pat them on the back and go, aren't you glad for grace, sister, brother? You tell them, or what I tell them is, you're not right with the Lord. I'm, I'm saying I'm not saved. I'm telling you, you need to get right with the Lord. Because <laughs> the one thing you can't give someone in that situation when they're persisting in disobedience or unbelief is assurance of their salvation. On the other hand... If those things are present, if someone is struggling with sin or struggling loving a brother or sister in Christ or struggling with a doctrine of Scripture, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. We all go through struggles at times. We are in this body, which means at times we struggle with sin, right? You know, we, we run into conflict with brothers and sisters and sometimes we get hurt or, or it's not easy to love them. Sometimes we come against things in Scripture and we go, man, that's, that's a hard truth. 
we're in process. We're still growing. And someone comes to me and says, listen, I'm standing on these things. I'm just struggling with it right now. I'm like, then I put my arm around that person and go, don't worry. God's grace is sufficient. <laughs> but if someone, you know, so I, I can't love that person. Oh, man, well, you're not right with the Lord then. What do you mean? I'm not, you're telling me I'm going to hell. I'm not telling you you're going to hell. That's for God to decide, not me. I'm just telling you you're not right with the Lord. And this is the situation Saul's in. Only God knows where that individual that is in front of you is at with the Lord. So here's my encouragement to you. Be someone in your relationship with Christ where none of that's in doubt. <laughs> Be someone where none of these things are ever in question, you know? If the Lord says it, forge ahead and say, Lord, that's what I want to do, you know? If, if, you know, if the Lord wants me to love somebody that's hard to love, then you say, Lord, I got to love them. It's not an option not to. I'm struggling right now, and I'm probably going to want to hit them, but you can help me love them. So I'm going to forge ahead and try to love them. This truth, man, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around it, but Lord, you say it, and that's enough for me. And so I'm going to believe it's true until I can wrap my head around it, until you can get a hold of this, you know, <laughs> Don't be offended, but my old pastor used to call the brain an educated idiot box. Sometimes the smarter we get, the more problems we have. Anyway, only God knows. The Lord knows how to deliver the righteous. The Lord knows them that are His. But I love what, what Paul says. You know, the Lord knows them that are his. Let those that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. <laughs> so that's, that's our word to one another. The Lord knows who's his and who's not. It's not for me to figure that out. But our word to someone is to say, hey, stop doing that. Get right with the Lord. But Saul, he does not get right with the Lord. He simply collapses here. Verse 20, then Saul fell straightway all along on the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all the day nor all the night. This is an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. It doesn't translate well to English, but it, it means that Saul immediately collapsed to his full height. I mean, this is like a, a, not like a fell to his knees crying. This is like a, a full-on fainting, you know, he, he, he collapses, literally. He, he just, chunk, you know? He just absolutely is, is laid out on the floor. Saul, interestingly enough, who stood head and shoulders above every other Israelite and had trusted in that superiority to secure his kingdom, found it useless when the Lord opposed him. None of that height mattered. He was stretched out from head to toe on the floor. None of them was standing now. And it mentions to us that Saul had been so stressed out that he couldn't even eat. And so now his anxiety reaches a height that he can't even remain standing. There may be a battle the next day, but for Saul, it's already over. And if you're going to have a desperate heart, man, let it be one that's desperate for the Lord. Look at Psalm 42 with me. Psalm 42. We read it in our scripture reading, and I like the old King James Version because, well, that's how the song goes. As the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God. Does that sound like someone who's pretty desperate? Yeah. As, as a deer is looking for, you know, the drink that he needs to keep going, that's how my soul is with you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I want, I want the real deal. I don't want some idol. I don't want some religious experience. I want the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I just want to see him. I want to be with him. 
My tears have been my food day and night while they continually saying to me, where is your God? This individual, this writer of this song, we don't know what they're going through, but they're crying out saying, you know, I've been crying to, to you, God, all, every night. And while other people are going, where's your God, man? You cry every day out to him. He doesn't answer you. But when I remember these things, verse 4, I don't give up. I don't turn away. I pour out my soul in me. For you know what? It wasn't always like this. I had gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept the holy day. He says, I went up. We don't know what holy day it was. I don't know if it's Passover, Pentecost, or you know, Yom Kippur. I don't know what, what it was that this individual went up, this writer. But he says, when I went up and I was with the others, man, we went into the house of the Lord and we rejoiced and we praised God. Times were good. He says, don't forget that right now. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art you disquieted in me? Hope thou, not in yourself, but in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He is going to face me at some point. I will come before him. This thing will be dealt with. And when we honestly look at it, This is the difference between Saul and David. Saul's heart was never desperate from the Lord. He was only desperate for himself. And so instead of Psalm 42 being his portion, because we read through here and he, you know, if you read through the rest of the Psalm, he talks about, you know, just the troubles he's going through, but, and how it seems like God's forgotten him and yet he's gonna hope in the Lord. He's gonna take that desperation to the Lord while That's not going to be Saul's portion. Saul gets something else. Look at Romans chapter 2 with me. Romans 2. Verses 5 through 9. Referring to the self-righteous legalist who thinks because he does this, this, and this, he's okay with God, even though he's living in sin. It says in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 5, but after your hardness and impenitent heart, that's Saul, you treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, what do they get? Eternal life, eternal things. Eternal life doesn't just start in eternity. It doesn't start with the Lord. It starts now. It's a quality of life, not just a quantity. In contrast, verse 8, but unto them that are contentious. Self-seeking is what that word contentious means. To them that are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, that's Saul. What's for them? Four things, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. That was Saul's portion. Didn't have to be. David, to be honest, did far worse than Saul did from an action standpoint, from a failure standpoint. If you list out all of David's failures and all of Saul's failures, David's got a bigger list. But David's portion was mercy. Saul's portion was anguish because David became desperate for the Lord. And Saul was only self-seeking, desperate for himself. Well, this woman has an issue now. She's got the king collapsed on her floor. And she makes a living off exploiting other people's hopes and fears. She didn't want to experience Saul's wrath for this awful news, and so she tries to get him to eat. Look at verse 21. And the woman came unto Saul and saw that he was sore troubled, and said unto him, Behold, your handmaid has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in your hand, and have hearkened unto the, the, your words which you spoke unto me. Thou, therefore, I pray you, hearken thou also unto the voice of your handmaid, and let me set a morsel of bread before you, and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But Saul refused, and he said, I will not eat. 
You know, she basically tells him, listen, I trusted you, now it's your turn to trust me. And while it seems like she is being very kind to him, I would ask the question, is she really being kind to him? What good is food tonight if he's going to die tomorrow? Truly, what good is that? Saul knew that at least, and so that's why he refused. I mean, he said, I will not eat. But note this, his servants, together with the woman, compelled him. They were beast to break through. They broke through his stubbornness, and he hearkened under their voice. So he arose from the earth, and he sat upon the bed, and the woman had a fat calf in the house. She hasted and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and did bake unleavened bread thereof. I mean, this is all going on in the middle of the night. I mean, Saul stays here for quite a while. I mean, this is how he spends the last moments of his life. In the house of a medium, with two other guys, you say the best thing to do right now is to eat something. And so she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. And then they rose up, and they went away that night. Part of Saul's problem is that he surrounded himself with people who were just as unspiritual as he was. And he put himself in an environment where the help, the help that people offered him wasn't the help he needed. And so with just a few hours left to live, Saul went away as if it was just another evening. There may have even been a small part of him that convinced himself, I, maybe I can beat this after he got some food. When you're in trouble, when you are desperate, please don't go to people who tell you what you want to hear. Don't go to people who will cook you a nice meal and treat you like a king and send you on your way as if everything is as right as rain. Listen to God's word. Listen to those who speak God's word. And act on what God says instead of plunging headlong into destruction. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we read this chapter, and it is not an easy read. We read this, and we just, I mean, from the beginning, we're like, where are we? Where is Saul? (laughs) And yet, Lord, uh, although we may not find ourselves in the home of the witch of Endor, sometimes we find ourselves in a place similar to Saul where we know the right thing to do, but we just don't want to hear it. And so, Saul, Lord, in those moments, help us to not be like Saul. Lord, help us as we battle temptation and battle pride and battle the things, either holding on to what we want or grasping for what we want. Lord, would you please, by your Spirit, convict us. Lord, draw us to yourself with those bands of loving kindness. Draw us to yourself, to repentance through your kindness through your spirit. Lord, we commit tonight, we want to be those who trust you and do not reach for and grasp for what we crave apart from you. We decide tonight to align our hearts with you, to not be found fighting against you, but to be those who just simply follow you. We love you, Lord, and we trust you that your way is best because Lord, you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.